Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to New Books in Film. I am your host, Joel Cherney. December 2014 was the 75th anniversary of the feature film release of Gone with the Wind. Based on the best-selling book by Margaret Mitchell, published in 1936, it is one of the most successful movies of all time and still has a wide following long after it. Welcome to New Books in Film. I am your host, Joel Cherney. December 2014 was the 75th anniversary of the feature film release of Gone with the Wind. Based on the best-selling book by Margaret Mitchell, published in 1936, it is one of the most successful movies of all time and still has a wide following long after its release. Today, I will be speaking with John Wiley Jr. about his book, The Scarlet Letters, The Making of the Film Gone with the Wind. The book was published in 2014 by Taylor Trade Publishing. In the book, John collected the correspondence of Margaret Mitchell from the initial sale of the novel to Selznick through its Atlanta premiere and after. In addition to the text of the letters, John provided detailed annotations that helped describe the making of the film from Margaret Mitchell's perspective. I hope you enjoy my conversation with John Wiley, Jr. Welcome, John. How are you today? I'm just fine. How about you? Not bad. It's a little, I'm here, as I was saying beforehand, I'm in Alabama, and it's a little rainy and cool, but we're supposed to get warm again uh, by the weekend, so I'm not complaining. I think same thing for us. Hollywood just celebrated the 75th anniversary of the release of the film version of Gone with the Wind. And the film and Margaret Mitchell's book have been the subject of many books, documentaries, and other films even. However, you have added a great deal to uh, the overall archive with your book of Mitchell's letters, this book we're talking about today. But before we get into the book itself, can you give me some of your background, particularly as it relates to um, this book? I know you are definitely an expert on Gone with the Wind, and how did your interest begin? I was 10 years old when I first saw the movie. That was in 1968, so you can figure out I'm 56. I'm 58, Um, so we're close. (laughs) We're in the same generation. My mom took my sister and me to see the movie, uh, and it just absolutely, immediately, I thought it was the best movie I had ever seen. Now, at age 10, a lot of it went over my head, but I just, I still remember coming out of the theater that afternoon feeling like I had known these people and had lived through what they had lived through and had been gone for like months. I just felt like I had gone on this long journey. And I realized, of course, while watching the credits to the movie that it was based on a book. So I decided I wanted to read the book as well. I checked that out of a bookmobile. I lived out in the county, so got it from the bookmobile. It took me a month to read it, and I liked the book even better than the movie. And so it just sort of took over my life. I began collecting uh, 
just started out with newspaper clippings, that kind of thing. But then it went into copies of the book, books about the book, that kind of thing. And it just sort of took off from there. Where exactly were you living at and where did you grow up? Grew up in Lynchburg, Virginia. It's sort of right in the center of the state. Yeah, because yeah, I was going to say, if at 10 years old you were reading the book Gone with the Wind, that was, it's a pretty big book even now for people to read. And yet, Absolutely, but I tell people even today, it, when you first look at it, it's 1,037 pages. It can be intimidating, but once you start reading, it really is an easy read. And I think she did such a great job with the characters that it just catches you up and carries you along. So basically it sounds – so you were you saw it in 68 when you were 10. That's probably about when I, I – well, I was a little later than then because, of course, back then the only way to see it was – you know, generally it had to be released. It had to be released in the theaters because I don't think it showed on television till many years after that. Still, so uh, but I do remember going to a, an actual motion picture theater to see it as well. So I suspect we were similar as far as that aspect of first seeing the film and, and experiencing it. What kind of other work have you done about Gone with the Wind so far? Well, I've for since really nineteen. 19, no, 1987, I've had a Gone with the Wind newsletter. Uh, it's currently called The Scarlet Letter, singular. The, my book title is The Scarlet Letters. Uh, it comes out quarterly. It is a printed newsletter, and I just sort of have covered all the news about Gone with the Wind, sort of historical articles, that kind of thing. This is actually my second book about Gone with the Wind in 2011 with a co-author, Ellen Brown. We did a book that we really termed a biography of the novel Gone with the Wind. And it sort of told the story of how Margaret Mitchell wrote the book, how it was marketed, and then took it beyond her death. She actually died pretty early uh, in 1949, just 13 years after the book came out, but explored how her heirs and her estate continued to promote the book and make a whole lot of money out of it and sort of protect it all the way up through 2011, which was the 75th anniversary of the book. This second book, The Scarlet Letters, which, as you mentioned, is a collection of Margaret Mitchell's letters about the movie, really sprang from that first book because while we were doing the research, we, of course, went through Margaret Mitchell's letters, which are at the University of Georgia. And Ellen and I both commented during the research and during the writing about how hard it was to cut her letters when you quoted from them because she just was such a good letter writer. And often you were trying to make a point, so you needed this, you know, three sentences here. But what she said just before that and what she said just after that was funny or witty or something, and you wanted to include it, but you couldn't because you were trying to make a specific point. And so I just, the more I thought about it, I thought, well, why not give people the opportunity to read her letters in their entirety and see how witty she was, how funny she was, and give, which 
I think is a very unique perspective, the making of this incredibly famous movie from the perspective of the author who really was on the outside looking in, but not quite as outside as she would like you to believe. Uh, we'll talk about that in more detail in a minute, but you're right. Much of the early correspondence goes a lot into how she has nothing to do with it. She said she wasn't going to have anything to do with it. She wasn't involved. And yet, as you pointed out, it's probably not as a hundred percent as she seemed to, to to say in the in the in the letters. Absolutely, I think just natural curiosity took over, as well as, and I think I say this in the introduction, almost a a maternal interest in it. Yes, she says, I sold the book, you can do whatever you want to. But this was like a child. This was her baby. She wanted to see what they were doing in bringing her book to the screen. Yeah, I've, I've read similar comments from other authors, particularly popular authors, who have been in the same boat where they sold their material to uh, someone for a film or television or something else. And as much as they know that they can't control, in fact, have, generally speaking, no involvement at all, it doesn't stop them completely from wanting to comment on what, on what actually happened with their material. Absolutely. Totally understandable. I was going to ask you about the source of the correspondence, and you've indicated already that it's it's at the University of Georgia. Is that what you said, the University of Georgia? Yes, that's correct. Was it difficult? I mean, is the material there in reasonably good order? Is it well indexed? Is it Was it something where you didn't have to spend a large amount of time um, doing digging, or was it a matter that you sort of had to do a little bit of uh, detective work to make sure you knew at all times what you were looking at? It involved a lot of detective work. Uh, the collection is easy to access in certain ways, but not in others. And I think this is pretty common for most libraries and scholarly institutions. They, when the university got the material, and they got it from Margaret Mitchell's brother in sort of beginning in the late 70s, I think, they kept, they made the decision to keep all of the material filed as it was in the original file cabinets that were in Margaret Mitchell's apartment and then in her brother's office. It was done alphabetically. So you really had to know who you wanted, whose letters you wanted to see. It wasn't done topically. It isn't done chronologically. So in the course, certain ones of them are easy. You wanted to see any letters she wrote to Clark Gable, to David Selznick, to Kay Brown, that kind of thing. The difficult part, although very enjoyable at the same time, was just discovering these letters to Mary Smith's in Paducah, in which Margaret Mitchell wrote this fascinating, you know, conversation about some point about the movie. And that was just a lot of luck. I have gone through these letters and papers for probably going on 20 years now, uh, both with the first book, with the newsletter, just general interest. I probably go to Georgia four times a year and probably 
two of those times I go to Athens and spend some time in the Margaret Mitchell papers. So I knew certain I had made notes over the years, that kind of thing. But there were days I would simply ask for a particular box of letters, uh, and they're like 150 or 200 file boxes of letters. These, of course, are Margaret Mitchell's carbons of the letters. Uh, I was going to ask you where you where the material actually came from, and you've just answered it. Because obviously the people to whom she sent the letters, they or their family members, hopefully still have those letters. But you've got she was very meticulous about keeping carbon copies of all of her correspondence. So I would, as I said, I, w- I just there were days I would say, pull me box seventy three, and just go through folder by folder, and I got pretty good at you could start reading the letter and say, okay, that's about the book, or that's something personal, or that's something, and flip over. Although it's it's sometimes still hard because she was such a good writer. You start reading and say, no, no, I'm not here to read about that, and flip it over. And then, like I said, you just find these little gems to average people who you did not know their name, you did not know to look them up but you ended up finding a delightful letter that she wrote to them about the movie. Just for my own interest, are there copies of the original letters that people wrote her, or is it... Yes, no. You have the original letters that people wrote to her, then you have her carbons of her replies. And over the years, there are some original Mitchell letters as well, either perhaps a child or grandchild of the person who received the letter has donated them back to the university. I think the university has purchased some collection of letters. So you may run across some actual Margaret Mitchell letters in there as well. So therefore of all all the file cabinets and material you had to go through, are there parts of the correspondence that you chose not to include related to Gone with the Wind in the movie, or were you pretty meticulous about making sure that you got as much as possible, or was it more of a matter of trying to find the material that you thought would be most illuminating or most interesting? I tried to include as much of each letter as I could. The only things I really cut out were things that were too repetitious. Uh, Maybe she had said this particular paragraph three times before in different letters. Uh, I wanted some repetition because I wanted people to get an idea of, my gosh, 10,000 people asked her the same question, and she very politely responded to each person, usually with the same answer, but a little different in each case. So cut out some repetition and would cut out personal things, not controversial things, but just, you know, maybe she spent a paragraph talking about sister so-and-so had been sick and had gone to the doctor. That really, while interesting if you knew those people, was not in keeping with the focus on the movie version of her novel. So that's really the only things I I trimmed, and of course, you know, I show that with ellipses. Yeah, I find 
this part of it is, the, in some ways, this aspect is mo- the most interesting to me because I'm a historian and along with being a librarian. So I have a little bit of both of what you had to go through. And one of the things that people don't un- don't always understand when when re- hearing about or reading about a, a book such as this, which is based on primary sources, or in this case, is primary sources directly, is how much work is involved in just the mechanical aspect of doing the work of actually compiling or reviewing all the material that's there. And that can be so much more work that's generally more work than the actual writing. You have- I appreciate you bringing that up because that is so true. And I will admit it was more work than even I thought it would be. Uh, I joked people because of my first book. They have said, well, do you have a co-author on this book? And I said, well, actually, yes, Margaret Mitchell. And at first you think, well, she wrote 95% of my book. But going through choosing the letters, I probably chose, started out with anywhere from 1,500 to 2,000 letters that substantially mentioned the movie or some aspect. I then, of course, had to whittle that down, and then you started having to look, okay, both letters sort of make the same point, but this one's a little funnier or a little clearer or something, so you ended up picking that one. Um, and then also, there are some informational footnotes throughout the text to identify people, names, places, movies, other books, that kind of thing, that I think readers today may not recognize. And so you you don't want them to stumble and lose interest thinking, well, what the heck is that? Or what did she mean by that? So you had to, I had to do a lot of research on that to write some explanations, but keep them very short because, again, the focus is her writing. I was very lucky in that, as I've said before, she is a wonderful writer. She wrote wonderful letters, but she also wrote a, quote, good letter. She was taught, as a lot of us of a certain age were, that when you're writing a letter, you don't just start out. You sort of give a very quick summary of why you're writing and what the letter that you received said. And she does that. And so even though you haven't read the letter that she received, she summarizes it and then has her say. I've had a couple of people ask me, well, why didn't you include the letter she got and her reply? Well, one, the book would have been twice as long, but also the way copyright works, I would have had to get permission from the heirs of every single person who wrote to her whose letter I wanted to include. If Mary Smith had written her a letter in 1936, I would have had to make a good faith effort to track down Mary Smith's daughter or granddaughter and get permission to reprint that letter. That, of course, is just an impossible task. Well, the good thing is, as you pointed out, because she was a a good, she she had a good writing style. She tended to write her many of the core the letters in the in the collection in the book begin more or less with an introduction with a summary of what the person actually wrote her about 
Yeah, so you really don't need to see the original right. letter. Margaret Mitchell tells you what it said. And yeah, I was going to ask you about the annotations that you did because, as you said, in reading the letters, even as much as you might know about Gone with the Wind and even about Margaret Mitchell, there was enough other things that she mentioned that it would be difficult to read sometimes. How much work did you had to do had to do with? Uh, uh, tracking down the specifics of some of the details that she mentioned in passing in her letters. There's, some of them were relatively easy. Others took, I mean, literally days and days of going down this path. No, that didn't work. Going down here, going down here. She would often a phrase or something, and you would almost have to go back to the newspapers of the period to see what she was talking about. Maybe it was some political event of the time or something. And you would read some of those and think, oh, okay, that's what she meant. President Roosevelt said this in a speech. That's what she was referring to. Now, I do not, I probably could have put twice as many informational footnotes as I have, but I, again, did not want to interrupt the flow. And so a lot that I wrote were edited. I edited out. I just said, that's interesting to know, but I don't think you have to know it to make sense of the story. Yeah, I, I did find generally in reading that, first off, because she there's a, because of the amount of repetition of certain topics, after a while, you're not, you, you pretty much know the background of what she's talking about from previous letters, but yeah. you're, you're commentary or your additional annotations definitely help to to show the entire story and actually your introduction did a pretty good job of presenting some of the issues that uh, appeared regularly in the correspondence so it wasn't a surprise when we got through we you know with some of those aspects i found it interesting that you even included some of her telegrams that she sent related back in that period of time if you wanted to get in touch with somebody quickly and you didn't, it wasn't easy to phone somebody or to call somebody. Telegrams were still incredibly popular as a quick way to get a hold of someone. Absolutely, because especially in the 30s, long distance telephone calls were extremely expensive and difficult. And, you, and difficult. And you did that only in a dire emergency. It was so much simpler and cheaper to send a telegram. And she could be rather wordy. <laughs> so uh, some of the telegrams, you know, but I find just the telegraphic style to be interesting. I think people, again, are younger than a certain age, they're really not even sure what a telegram is. But I think that added a special sort of period touch to have her, instead of you've got this lengthy, well-written, full-sentence letter, you've got some of these telegrams that just get to the point. Well, it also helps with the cultural background of the of the writing. So much of yeah. when you read things like this, you're getting a, ba a, ba a background of culture and just the way people lived. And even as you said, the, the as expensive as long-distance phone calls could be, telegrams could be expensive because you paid by the word. And uh, so her longer telegrams were probably pretty expensive all by themselves. But they also gave you a written record of what had been said, something that you really didn't have because very few people, if anyone, recorded their phone conversations back then. 
Let's start to talk a little bit about some specifics within the book. You follow a chronological style, which, of course, structure, which makes sense, obviously. And the early letters pretty much start almost from the moment she sold the film rights. And, in fact, there's a little bit of a, a few letters that were about even before the rights were sold. And then she begins to almost immediately have to respond to people thinking that she was closely involved in the making of the movie. Let's talk. Can you talk about some of the issues that she was running into during this early period of the pre-production and the sale of the rights? As you mentioned, it does start out before she sold the rights, and then she was questioning, is anybody even going to buy the rights to this? This is not going to be easy to make into a movie. It's so big. There's so many characters. So she was questioning, why would anybody buy this book? Uh, Once it was sold, it was an immediate hit. And when the public found out it was coming to the silver screen, they just went nuts. They wanted to be in the movie. They wanted someone they knew to be in the movie. They wanted their favorite actor to be in the movie or actress. They wanted to loan to the movie people their grandmother's house to film there, their grandmother's dress. They wanted to write songs for the movie. And they, all of these people wrote to Margaret Mitchell and made these offers. She, being Southern lady, very polite and very appreciative of their interest, answered almost every single letter she received. And there were times she was receiving hundreds, if not thousands, of letters a week. And she sat down and answered almost every one of them. One of the things, as you say, that gets somebody deciding, well, they personally would be the perfect Scarlett O'Hara or articles. The other thing that was pretty obvious is that she was carefully reading the newspapers and magazines. Anytime she was mentioned in any way, shape, or form, she clearly was paying attention. Because Absolutely. She, well, many, of her, many of the letters review are, are either to uh, a newspaper person who wrote something that she felt was in error or someone else, a, pub- a publicist, to try to make sure that she would get certain things uh, corrected, and including gossip columnists. Yes, she was very, very intent on making sure that what was put out there about her was accurate. And as happens today, of course, now with the internet, it happens, you know, tenfold. But rumors popped up, and she could say something in an interview or a letter that perhaps she had strained her eyes. Well, by the time it went through, you know, six or eight people and ended up in a newspaper somewhere, she was blind. So it just seemed like everything she said ended up being reported exaggerated. And that, at first, she was sort of patient about it, but as it as time went on, she got she really got angry about it. She was like, "If you have a question, call me." to a reporter or, or a writer, and I will answer it. Don't just write stuff without checking with me first. Yeah, one of the earliest uh, rumors that she consistently was trying to, to quash was that she somehow had a niece that she was going to, that she was pushing to be in the film. 
And yeah. she it, she was constantly saying, number one, I don't even know who this person is. They certainly are not not my niece. They're not related to me in any way. And it seemed like it was a rumor that she was regularly having to deal with. Yes, and those things, as they even do today, you can quash a rumor, and then six months or a year later, it pops up somewhere else, and people just are off and running. And again, Gone with the Wind was so incredibly popular. Anything about her, about the book, about the movie was just fascinating, and the media, which was basically back then newspapers and magazines, uh, just picked it up and ran with it. And because, um, as you say, there was just so much. In fact, it was interesting how quickly the book was sold to the movies back then. I don't know in general how quickly books were sold, but I know nowadays, or especially in the last maybe 30 or 40 years, it's become more obvious that, and this happened in this case, where uh, the movie studios actually had copies of the book, had galley proofs of the book before it even came out. So yeah. there was major publicity going on in the in Hollywood even before the film, the book was released. And again, when we looking back, it's easy to see, oh my gosh, this just has a movie written all over it. But it also was, as Margaret Mitchell pointed out, it was an enormously long book with many, many characters, covered more than a dozen years, very complex storylines. It was not an easy movie to make. Well, yeah, especially since so many, like you say, the, the characters and the importance of characters, they all had to be, you know, the number of important characters, even supporting in supporting roles, that just the concept of, okay, how you cast something like this, especially in the studio system where just picking in nowadays and uh, a producer can say, I want so-and-so for the movie, and the chances are it's not going to be a problem if the person right. wants to do it back then. And you can meet their price. Right. Talk a little bit about that, because didn't it affect the studio system definitely uh, reduced or, or slowed down the production, particularly as it related to Clark Gable's involvement, right? Absolutely, absolutely. And I think part of that was why David Selznick, who eventually purchased the movie rights and made the film, was a little hesitant. He was an independent studio. He did not have a lot of actors and actresses under contract to him, and he knew it was going to be a lot of trouble to get these other actors and actresses from other studios. Pretty early on, Clark Gable kind of surfaced as the public's choice for Rhett Butler. Clark Gable was under contract to MGM. Interestingly, Selznick, MGM was located about a mile from Selznick Studio in Culver City and was run by Louis B. Mayer, who just happened to be David Selznick's father-in-law. So I've always thought that little bit of family probably added some, some extra layers of interest to it. But to get Gable, Selznick would have to go through MGM. MGM was not big on loaning out its stars to other studios. And once Selznick had purchased the rights and the book took off and was just huge, MGM suddenly sort of was kind of interested in Gone with the Wind. And at one point, Selznick even 
I don't know that he seriously considered, but he sort of discussed an offer from MGM who stepped in and said, well, why don't we buy the rights from you? We'll make the movie with Gable and, you know, do it proud. But by then, he had really taken this book to heart. He wanted to make this movie his independent studio. But he also, he looked for other rap butlers. He, he, you know, looked at Gary Cooper, Ronald Coleman, people like that. But it all kept coming back to Clark Gable. And so finally he realized he had to have Gable. So he had to deal with his father-in-law, who was not very generous, uh, ended up, they put, MGM put up half of at that time what they considered how much the movie would cost, loaned Gable, but got half of the profits from the movie. So Selznick had to give away half of the movie just to get Clark Gable. But I think anyone who's seen the movie, he did the right thing. I mean, Gable is Rhett Butler. And of course, this basically slowed down the making of the film because, if I remember it correctly, very little was done in 1938. That is true. Part as, as It was sort of a two, twofold reason. Selznick had a contract with United Artists to distribute his films. That contract ran through the end of 1938. Therefore, for MGM to distribute the film, which was part of the deal, it could not come out until 1939. So he delayed it some for that, but he also was looking for the right person to play Scarlet, which was a whole different set of issues. And then he also, Selznick also sort of wanted to give himself some time, let the book not be quite as fresh in the minds of the movie going public, because he was afraid if they were too close to it, he knew up front he was going to have to cut scenes and characters. He wanted it to be a little time so they wouldn't be quite so judgmental, if you will, on the fact that, well, he cut out my favorite character. I know also that some of the correspondence in 30, you know, during the early part of the book deals with regular um, correspondence she was getting from the author, or the, excuse me, the screenwriter, and... Um, including some meetings, and there was a lot of back and forth where she was writing him, and a lot of that had to do with um, questions as to whether she, how involved, this goes back to the question of how involved she was in the actual filmmaking process, and it comes through in a lot of the correspondence, not only with him, but with the studio and with other people as to what her actual involvement was as far as the writing in particular of the, of yeah. the screenplay. And I think, and I think, the screenwriter, of course, was Sidney Howard. Howard had a lot of questions and was sort of under the assumption that she would help him. And she quickly set him straight. No, I'm not. I don't know anything about writing a screenplay. But again, as sort of with the, I'm not involved, but I am. She helped him more than she let on. He would have questions about historical things, and she would go do some more research and say, well, no, they didn't have any iron balconies in Atlanta uh, and that kind of thing. So she did help him with that. Of course, then Victor Fleming was the final director, but some of the early yeah. correspondence brings up 
most people who are familiar with Gone with the Wind in detail under know this, but if you're only a casual fan, you might not know that uh, the original director of the film was not a Victor Fleming. True. It was George Cukor, whom Margaret Mitchell did meet. He came to Atlanta. Uh, she really liked him. They hit it off. She took him around uh, out sort of in the countryside around Atlanta to show him the kind of places about which she wrote. And she notes on several occasions that she thinks they, the people from Hollywood were very disappointed. They were expecting the sort of houses you see in Savannah and Charleston or outside of Charleston, these big white-columned mansions. That's not what was built in the area of Georgia about which she wrote. They were really just sort of large farmhouses. But she really did like George Cukor. He worked on the movie from 36, began filming the movie. But he and Selznick just didn't see eye to eye on it, and he was fired in February of 1939, and Victor Fleming came in. And there were some other people who also directed parts, but by and large, Victor Fleming directed most of it, received credit, and went on to win the Academy Award. In the same way with the writing, there were more than one. I mean, Sidney Howard, as you pointed out correctly, <laughs> was the screen uh, wrote the screenplay, but there were a lot of other people's fingers in the in the pie, so to speak. Absolutely. Selznick himself wrote chunks of it. He had other people, Ben Hecht, other writers come in and try their hand at it, but they kept going back to Sidney Howard's, and he ended up getting uh, full credit. And he also won the Academy Award, although unfortunately he had been killed, and so he was the first posthumous Oscar winner. So, but then of course in the book, then as we get into 1939, and People just think of that for a second. That when did what was the actual considered first day of filming? They filmed sort of the Atlanta fire sequence in December, but the actual first day of filming was January 26th, and they were pretty much done at the end of June, which is an amazing right. fact. That's what I was going to bring up. You look at it and you think to yourself, this entire film ended up being four hours almost to film. And plus a lot on the cutting room floor, probably. Uh, the entire thing was filmed in six months and yeah. released six months later. Absolutely. Just, I mean, unheard of. In, in today's time, sometimes movies take two and three years. Right, and that that's the part. I mean, and especially on a spectacle level, it's one thing to have him to do a quick film where it's mostly dialogue and maybe the settings are sim simple. And but here we had a Technicolor film, which still was very rare at the time. I mean, we know we had a couple of very unusual color films came out in 1939 between Gone with the Wind and The Wizard of Oz, but still there was a lot more Technicolor as a concept added a great deal to the overall technical issues and the comp how complex the filmmaking was. Absolutely. So as you've already mentioned, 1939 was an interesting year for her in that not only was the movie being produced, but she was uh, but then the premiere was at the end of the year in Atlanta. Um, talk a little bit about some of the issues that were coming up regularly in her correspondence during the actual making of the film, because you actually split 39 into two chapters because there was so much 
uh, new material, so much material, particularly around those two aspects, the actual making and then the post-production and premiere. Yes, that was, again, that was one of those things I learned along the way. When you first start a book, oh, well, I'll just do a chapter per year. But as you mentioned, 39, there was so much there, I had to break it up. Um, While the filming was going on, sort of the first half of 1939, People, once they settled on Scarlett, she had a few letters of they didn't want a British actress playing Scarlett, that kind of thing. But once filming started, the questions became more along the lines of, well, I'm going to California. Do you think you can get me on the set? (laughs) That kind of thing. Uh, As filming wrapped up and they started talking about the premiere, things just jumped up to another level. Everybody was writing her, oh, I must be at the premiere. Can you help me get tickets? Or when the stars come to Atlanta, can you get Clark Gable to come speak to my garden club? And just, I mean, you laugh at some of the things people asked. And again, she would say, I have nothing to do with that. You need to talk to the movie people, that kind of thing. So, but it just, and I think she uses this phrase, it gets faster and funnier by the hour and it really does you just the tempo of the letters just picks up the closer you get to premiere date and all the crazy things people want and people want her to come to parties and they want her to do this and i think you get a good feel for all the craziness she was going through Frankly, she had all this work going on just writing her letters. <laughs> she just, you sometimes Absolutely. wonder where did she have time to write all the letters that she wrote. Absolutely. She did, of course, eventually have a secretary. And once you read enough letters, you realize she almost had sort of form letters because people would ask the same questions over and over. Although, she in, she or her secretary individually typed each letter. It wasn't like they just filled in the blanks. And she, on almost every one, she would make it personal to you. If two people wrote the exact same question, did Scarlett get Rhett back? She would answer pretty much the same, but to the person who wrote from Alabama, for example, she may say something about how she thought Alabama was such a pretty state, she hoped to get back for a visit. To the person who wrote that same question from New York, maybe they mentioned some other book they had read or something, and she would mention that. Oh, I read that book too. I loved it. She just, each of her letters, she made, she added a little bit of personalization to. That, of course, I found amusing because often she, I mean, it was very nice, but because she did that, the person who, wrote her letter, had their question answered, would think, oh my gosh, isn't she nice? So they would write her again, and then she would end up replying to them. And so in a way, she created some of her problems with so many people writing to her because she was so open and so friendly, they would keep writing. It should have been a one letter, one answer, but it turned into a correspondence sometimes over years. Speaking of which, let's let's come back to this a little bit. This issue of her of how she wrote different people, and particularly different groups of people. You, one of the things you can tell pretty quickly is that 
when you didn't even need to see specifically who she was writing to sometimes just by the tone of the letter you could tell okay was this a a reporter was this um somebody from the studio in particular where she had a lot of correspondence or was this a family member or somebody she knew well where she could be a little more free or flip with some of the things she said so you can very quickly just from reading the letters you can see the different tone that she took um, her writing style would depend would, would begin be much more formal with some groups or some people versus a more informal style with people she knew well Absolutely, and I, I find that fascinating that you mentioned that you can. Once you get into this, you can. You don't really even need to look at who she wrote to. You can say that's, if not to a particular person, certainly to a particular group of people. This is to somebody at the studio. This is to somebody at her publisher. That kind of thing. And she, most of her letters are very friendly, but you could get her riled up. And she would write you a letter and put you in your place. But inevitably, at the end, she would say, she would take you to task for five pages and then say, however, if I am mistaken, please forgive me and blah, blah, blah. (laughs) So she, even though she could get angry and give you a lecture, she always ended up to make sure, well, I hope I haven't offended you. If I misjudged, I'm sorry. Because during some of the more contentious periods and situations you could see because not only would there be a letter but then there'd be a telegram and then sometimes she would refer to an actual phone call or even a visit from someone and you can actually see the threads but you could see how you really get a good sense of what she was going through at least as the way she looked at it with all the craziness that was going on with the making of the film even through from pre-production right on through towards the premiere Yes. And we mentioned before how phone conversations, you know, weren't recorded. But as you get later, later files of letters, if it was a major issue, there would be handwritten notes taken from, you know, I talked to so-and-so on this date. This is what we talked about. So she made notes because she got to the point where she just she this written record she sometimes needed to refer back to, whether for legal reasons or just somebody would write her five years later and say, well, you told me this. And she would say, no, according to the letter I wrote you on this date, this is what I said. What kind of correspondence did you include then related to the film after the premiere? Obviously, you wrote some, you have a chapter that started with the, after the premiere, right through, uh, 1940, and then you've got a chapter at the end, which is afterwards, pretty much right up to her death in 49. So we've, she, as you mentioned, uh, she died early, and in this particular case, it was an accident, uh, automobile. She was hit by a car, am I correct? Yes, with? that's correct. So what kind of letters did she continue to write after the premiere of the film, during the period of time when the popularity of the film was obviously so huge? Well, immediately after the premiere, and I I left out many of these just because there were so many, but she wrote, the premiere was Friday night, the 15th of December. On the 16th of December, she must have written 20 or 30 thank you letters. 
And so I've included some of those. She wrote to the editors of the paper, to the mayor, to the police chief, to fellow reporters, just thanking them for what they had done at the premiere for making her so proud of Atlanta. Or maybe she just commented to a reporter about a particular line they wrote in a story or something. Then she began writing to fans who maybe had never read the book but saw the movie and wanted a sequel. They wanted to know if Scarlett and Rhett got back together. So there were those kind of letters. The producer, David Selfing, desperately wanted her to do a sequel or give him the rights to do a sequel. So there are letters about that. When she finally made it clear to him she was not going to do a sequel, he decided he wanted to do maybe a stage version or a musical version. So there are letters about that. Then, as the movie opened overseas, it did open in England before, well, really during the war um, and of South America, but in great parts of Europe and Asia, it did not open until after World War II, really sort of the late 40s. She started getting letters from people overseas who had seen the movie. And um, something else I found fascinating, she every year from the time the movie came out, the producer sent Margaret Mitchell a Christmas gift of some sort. So she would always write him to thank him for the gift and then just sort of bring him up to date on what she had been doing and said, I'm following your career and that kind of thing. So she kept in touch with him. There's a wonderful letter that she wrote to Clark Gable after his wife, Carol Lombard, was killed in a plane crash. She wrote to Vivian Lee when she appeared in plays. She wrote to Olivia de Havilland. Uh, she wrote to Hattie McDaniel, who played Manny. So she kept in touch, not a lot, but occasionally with people in the movie. And so there's just an, an assortment of letters because the movie continued to generate interest and people would write to her and she would politely reply. Speaking of then of, of all the letter writing, uh, reading that you did, do you feel like, I mean, I know specifically you pretty much minded as part as the, her correspondence for the films, but did you see signs that there might be other books, not necessarily that you would do, but that somebody might be interested in doing with some of the other correspondence that you read? I mean, you had to pull out a lot of material, but there was obviously a lot of material you didn't include because it wasn't germane. Absolutely. There absolutely are other there are other books in general in those papers. I think there are other collections of letters. Uh, she did a great deal of philanthropic work. Um, the main thing that surfaced maybe 10 years ago was that in the 1940s, she anonymously made donations to Morehouse College in Atlanta to help black medical students get their education. And so there were many doctors, black doctors in the South, who did not know for years and years that their education came about because Margaret Mitchell helped pay for part of it. Um, so you've got that. You've got just their letters about, a lot of letters about World War II. She, her book was translated into many foreign languages. Um, she 
basically ran this business from her apartment in Atlanta all over the world during World War II. So she ran into a lot of copyright issues. After the war, she ran into issues where her publishers, there were several who were Jewish and had disappeared during the war. Um, So there were those kind of issues. She sent care packages overseas after the war. Um, There's just, there are a whole lot of just fascinating things. As I said, when I went through the files just casually, it was hard not to read every single letter because almost all of them contained a little interesting tidbit or something. But again, I had to say, okay, it's not about the movie. Move on. Is there much correspondence that she wrote that you saw that when she was writing the book? Or is it more so, did she keep pretty much to herself to a large extent when she was writing? She was very private when she was writing. There are some letters basically to her husband's family in which the book is mentioned briefly. Uh, She pretty much wrote the book, and she and her husband were the only ones who were kind of reading it along. Some friends knew she was working on something, but they really didn't know about it. So unfortunately, there are not a lot of letters before late 35. Uh, Interestingly, after she died, which I said before was in 1949, her husband said that she had told him she wanted all of her papers destroyed after her death. He unfortunately did destroy most of the manuscript of the novel, but he also began destroying letters. And her secretary spoke up, and then I think he quickly realized that a lot of these letters would come in handy for legal reasons, business reasons, that kind of thing. So he did stop destroying most of the letters. But, and I mentioned this in a note, that there are some files of letters that the the folder is there, but when you open it, there's a little note handwritten either by John Marsh, her husband, or Margaret Ball, her secretary, that detail this correspondence dated here to here was destroyed on this date. And so... When you see those, you're just like, oh, what was in that folder? Uh, I think from what we've been able to gather, most of the correspondence destroyed was was personal correspondence. It was, you know, she was talking about things that weren't related to the book or the movie. But there are some files that you, you have some letters of hers to them, and you wonder... And say three of, who knows, 20 or 30 letters survived, you wonder what did those other 17 letters say? Mm-hmm. Well, as we've, as I sort of said earlier on, this is part of the issue when you deal with primary sources of any sort, whether it's for something like this or anything else. You have to go with what you have, but you also have to be careful not to either assume what's in that material or you can't always even say you're telling an entire story. You can only tell with what you have. Absolutely. And it's something you as the author or an editor have to consider in your entire process. 
Yes. And I did note that, that there were a couple of files specifically that I really hoped to see and think they would have been related based on some other things. But when I got there, you know, they had been destroyed. And unless you can track down the heirs of the people to whom she wrote, which I tried to do as well, and, you know, hope they still have the original letters, you know, they are gone. And, of course, I've been back to the university since the book came out and just have stumbled across two or three letters, I think. Oh, I would love to have included that, but you have to have a cutoff date sometime. Well, that's it in, in any kind of – and this is what I asked – we were talking about earlier, when do you decide what you're going to include? But you reach a point where if you're going to publish, you have to put a date and say, this is it. I can't do anything more unless you found something that completely changed – if, if there had been something so major, that would have been a different story. But Oh, absolutely. They have not found anything like that, just found some. I thought, oh, that's a nice little twist to it. But again, as you said, there has to be a deadline. And that's something I struggle with because I love the research. And I could research the rest of my life. But <laughs> the point of research usually is to end up with a final product. And so speaking of which... to cut it off... <laughs> Speaking of which, then, what are your plans? Do you have any specific either publishing or other similar type plans for future Gone with the Wind projects? In the back of my mind, I'm mulling a couple of things. Uh, I found I really have been working. I have a full-time job, but in the evenings, I really have been working on these two books for five or six years. And I found that the past few weeks... I've been kind of bored in the evenings. <laughs> I need to be working on something. So I thought, well, the way to cure that is to find another project. Uh, part of me says, well, maybe I should move beyond Gone with the Wind. But then I think there's plenty more there to write about. And you also, to do research, you have to be researching a topic that you're really interested in and that you're passionate about to carry you through. Because research is not easy. I do enjoy it, but you spend a week in the library. By you know Monday, you're fine. Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, by lunch, Friday, about ten o'clock in the morning, you're just worn out. But you just you need that overarching appreciation for the subject to keep you going. And so, Gone with the Wind is still my passion. So. Perhaps there will be another one. Speaking of which, and this is my own personal interest, did you find the staff at the at the library helpful to you? Absolutely. They are just some of the most incredibly helpful people I've ever worked with, both at the University of Georgia and at the University of Texas, which has the David Selznick collection. Uh, I wasn't able to spend a whole lot of time there, but they did have some copies of letters that from Margaret Mitchell that perhaps part of was missing in the Mitchell files at the University of Georgia, or some of it was unreadable. And so it was more, that trip was more of a, to confirm and make sure I had the complete letters. But, um, both both of them very helpful. Now, the Mitchell papers, of course, as with the Selznick papers, you do need permission. Uh, you can 
anyone pretty much can go in and read the letters, but the Mitchell paper specifically, you need permission from the estate to copy the letters and, of course, reprint them. That's a whole different thing. But um, even to copy the letters of Margaret Mitchell, you need permission from the estate. I have been very lucky over the past 20 years to have built up a good relationship with the estate. And so they have been very helpful in granting me permission to use those letters. Well, John, not only did I find this an interesting discussion of the actual material that you included in the book, but also the process. I think processes of how people research and write can be so interesting, or at least to me. And frankly, that's the way I sort of look at things. I ask questions that I think are interesting based on my own thoughts, but it really... I, I really appreciate the amount of detail you gave me as far as uh, how you compiled this and just the processes you went through. And I really want to thank you for taking the time, especially in a, as, a, as you pointed out, you're a full-time employee, you have a job, you have a full-time job. So making sure that you were able to take some time really was, was helpful to me. And I want to thank you for, for taking that time. Well, you are certainly welcome. As you can tell, I enjoy talking about Gone with the Wind, and uh, I think co-workers and family are glad when I have another outlet so <laughs> they don't have to listen to it all the time. Okay, thanks a lot. Certainly. My great thanks to John for his time. His collection is a new and fascinating way to look at Gone with the Wind. I hope you will find it as interesting as I did. This is Joel Cherney, and I will be back soon with more new books in film.